Our sermon this morning is from uh, two places, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and Genesis chapter 38. So turn to both of those, maybe keep your finger in one and the other. We're, we're, doing, we're doing a new sermon series starting this week, uh, and we're going to work through um, the, the first chapter of Matthew, the genealogy in the first chapter of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus. And so we're going, to take, we're going to take about five weeks to work through this, and we're going to give particular attention to uh, five names or five people that we see in the genealogy of Jesus, uh, five females. So Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and, and Mary. So we're going to take uh, this and the next four weeks, pretty much the, the duration of the Advent season up until Christmas. So we're going to, this series will end the Sunday before Christmas with Mary and the, and the nativity story. So that was... That was pre-planned. I did that on purpose. Um, but uh, So we're going to get to know these five women. We're going to hear their stories, and we're going to just consider together why uh, God saw fit to, to include these women in the genealogy uh, of, of Jesus. Um, there, there are two, just, just by way of preface before we, before we dive in, there's two genealogies of Jesus in the New Testament. One is in Matthew, one is in Luke. They're different, but don't let that kind of throw you, uh, throw you off. There's, there's, you know, uh, yeah, there, there are a number of different ways that scholars uh, have, you know, kind of have determined that these are reconcilable. Um, the majority of the difference comes, uh, you know, after King David, uh, but before Joseph. So there's kind of a, a, a line in there. And so uh, some scholars will say, um, you know, I'm not going to get into it too much. If you if you if you're interested in it, you can go listen to one of the sermons I preached on Luke three on this genealogy in Luke three uh, a couple of years ago. But suffice it to say, um, some guys think that uh, one genealogy is, that the one in Luke is actually recounting Mary's genealogy, but they just replaced the name Mary with Joseph because once they got married, he kind of there there are no females in the the Lucan geology. Uh, some think that they're both genealogies of Joseph, but just that Joseph kind of had, uh, for lack of a better uh, way of, of understanding it, two fathers, maybe a biological father and an, ado- an adoptive father, or maybe his mom got remarried and he kind of had a second uh, you know, father figure in his life that he could consider a father. And that's why uh, in these two, gen- two genealogies, one has one guy listed as Joseph's father, the other has, has another. Uh, at the end of the day, it's not, not particularly, particularly relevant other than if it's something that you're interested in, something that you're like, you know, caught off guard by or you want to talk more about, feel free to, to um, you know, come talk to me afterwards and we can kind of think it through. But for our purposes today, uh, we're going to look at the genealogy in Matthew. Um, and, and what's interesting, like I said, is that the genealogy in Matthew uh, has women in it. This is no small detail, not something that we should over, overlook. Uh, women were not typically included in genealogies in the Old Testament. It was a patriarchal society. Everything, everything about who you were and what you owned and, and kind of all of that kind of ran through your father and through your father's father and his father, kind of back your name, your possessions, your inheritance, your land. Um, and so no one included mothers in their genealogies except Jesus did. He included uh, five women uh, in his genealogy. This would kind of start a trend that would continue through Jesus's life, a trend of uh, recognizing women 
and celebrating women and affirming women and dignifying women and, and you know, recognizing the value and the importance and the contributions of women. That Jesus was, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, awfully progressive for his time with how he saw women and interacted with them. He, he recognized that women were equals. They were people that were created in God's image who, who mattered and who, who God cared deeply about. And so, so that's one kind of uh, thing that's important when we look at this genealogy in Matthew 1 is that there are women present. But the other is the, is the uh, specific women that are present and the specifics of their respective stories. Um, because as we're going to see when we work our way through their stories over the next few weeks, uh, most if not all of the women in Jesus' genealogy had some sort of scandal surrounding them. Either something uh, that they did or something that they were accused of doing, or for some reason, some people somewhere kind of had some sort of stigma that they kind of placed on these uh, five women, which is important because, um, like, you and I, we, we are at the, just at the mercy of our ancestry. We're just born into a family. We have no say in the matter. We don't, you know, particularly decide. But Jesus actively chose his ancestor, like he chose the family that he would be born into. He chose his specific line of descendants that would be traced to him. It's almost as if Jesus chose on purpose to be born into this family with these ancestors who have these stories, almost as if he's trying to say, um, you know, I, I know what you've done. I'm not ashamed of you. I love you. I, I care for you. I have not, right? Other people in the world may have written you off. They may have disqualified you. They may have said that you are not worth their, their time. I, uh, love you. I, I, I came to forgive sinners. I came to remove the stigma that sinners carry around with them. I came to restore you and give you new life. So much so that I'm going to eternally link my name to yours. I'm going to be a part of your family. You're going to be a part of my family tree. So the genealogy in Matthew says a lot about the image of God and what it means to be created in the image of God and, and the dignity of women. And it says a lot about the grace of God and, and uh, how God forgives sinners and how sinners can be restored back into God's presence. So that's going to be some, those are some of the, the overarching themes that we're going to consider as we work through these, uh, these names in the next, uh, in the next few weeks. It's far, you know, a lot of times you come to the, uh, genealogies and you just kind of write them off as like some weird, boring, you know, almost like reading names out of a phone book or something like that. But it's far from that, right? The, the, the genealogies tell us a lot about who God is and who we are. So let's read it. Let's read the first three verses of Matthew chapter one, and then we'll dive into the story of, of Tamar. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That's it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege that it is to have access to your word, to be able to read it and meditate on it. We pray that you would help us to, uh, to savor it and to enjoy it and to obey it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
Okay, story of Tamar. Flip nail to Genesis chapter 38, because that's going to be where we spend the remainder of our time as we kind of look at Tamar's... If you have, a, if you have an app or something, don't just search for Tamar, because there's, not, there's more than one Tamar in the Bible. They both have weird, crazy story. The, the other Tamar story is just as crazy as this one. Uh, that is in... 2 Samuel 13, uh, but we're going to look at this one in Genesis chapter 38 this morning. So turn, turn there. We'll kind of cover the backstory first, which we kind of saw, you know, with, with Jesus, the son of, of Abraham. God calls Abraham out of his country to go form a new nation of God's people. Abraham gives birth to Isaac. Isaac gives birth to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Among those 12 sons are Joseph, right? The guy that we all know, the coat of many colors, you know, sold into slavery into Egypt, then that guy. But one of his, one of his, 11 brothers is Judah. And Judah is going to be uh, one of the main characters in the story here in Genesis uh, 38. In fact, it's interesting. So the story of Joseph and uh, his kind of uh, his brothers and then his, you know, going to Egypt, which ultimately would kind of set the stage for the nation of Israel, you know, being enslaved by Egypt in in the book of Exodus. uh, Joseph and his story is Genesis 37 to 50. And Judah and his story with Tamar is chapter 38. So it's kind of nested in the middle of a broader story uh, about uh, Joseph. And, and what we're going to see is that, you know, in, in chapter 37, Judah uh, is mentioned by name. He's kind of the, the mastermind behind selling his brother Joseph into uh, slavery. He hates Joseph. He's jealous of Joseph, and he wants Joseph out of uh, the picture. And immediately after they do that, and immediately after they sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt, uh, um, comes Genesis chapter 38. So we'll start in verse 1. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son. His name was Ur. Then she conceived again and bore a son, and his name was called Onan. Then she conceived again uh, and gave birth to another son, and he was called Shelah. And Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. So, Judah, road trip, goes, uh, kind of leaves his brothers temporarily, finds a Gentile wife, has three sons with her. Uh, later, the sons start to grow up. His oldest son, Ur, is ready to get married. Verse 6, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. All right, uh, so far, so good. Um, now, if we look at uh, verse 7, uh, but Ur, Judah's firstborn son, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. That's all we know about Ur, just that he was Judah's firstborn son, and he was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God put him to death. I mean, not, not really much you can kind of speculate or conjecture beyond that. I mean, it's worth, it's interesting, I kind of was, as I was thinking and meditating on it, it's interesting that, that Ur is kind of, um, you know, located as or determined to be wicked in God's eyes immediately after he gets married, which I think just speaks to the nature of marriage itself, how it can kind of function as a, uh, a crucible. A, a marriage can kind of bring uh, the, any sort of sin or selfishness that's lurking in your heart, it can kind of bring it to the surface. Not that marriage is bad. It's not that marriage makes you bad, but, but uh, marriage has a way of exposing what is lurking in your, your heart, right? You're, you're single. You can do whatever you want, whenever you want. You don't have to ask anyone for permission to do anything. 
spend your time how you want, spend your money how you want, right? No one is there to kind of call you out on things. No one's there to blow the whistle on you and you get married and all that changes, right? There's, a, there's another person who's there. Their preferences have the potential to kind of clash against yours, their desires, their ideas. They can come into conflict with yours. All of a sudden you have to compromise and you have to kind of uh, prioritize your spouse's needs above your own. And so, uh, so all of that is good, provided that you respond uh, well to it, right? right? The, the, the idea that, that we have selfishness lurking in our hearts that we don't even know about that kind of comes to the surface when we are around other people uh, is, is, is normal and good, provided that you respond appropriately and you repent. If that's the case, then uh, God is using marriage to uh, grow you and sanctify you. But if you don't respond appropriately, if you, if you dig in and kind of lash out and become violent, then, then God, God is not using your marriage to, uh, you know, sanctify you and grow you as much as he's using your marriage to expose the, the, uh, the ugliness that's in your heart, the selfishness and pride and unbelief. So presumably that's what happens with Ur, right? He gets married, and instead of marriage, instead of God using marriage to redeem him and sanctify him and, and you know, help him to repent, uh, this marriage is being used to expose the pride and unbelief that is in his heart. And so God kills him. God, God kills Ur right on the spot. In verse 8, uh, Judah says to Onan, the second born, the second, now, now the oldest living son, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. This was a common practice in the Old Testament. It's what's known as a, a leveret marriage. You can, it's actually uh, prescribed and, and, you know, in detail in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Um, basically, uh, in, in the Old Testament, uh, men and women got, got married, but one big part of marriage, one, one, like the, almost the main part of why a man and a woman get married would be to have children um, for a number of reasons. A lot of it is kind of cultural, just the, the nature of the culture at the time. But one is that they would take care of you when you got older, right? No social security, no 401ks. And so your, uh, your safety net, as it were, your ability to live comfortably and not be destitute when you're old was to have kids, right? You, if you're 65, 70, 80 years old, you want someone 20, 30, 40 years younger than you to, to take care of you, invite you into their home when it becomes necessary, you know, help, help with what they need to do. Another big reason, other than just, you know, having someone take care of you in your old age was, was kind of propagating your name into the next generation. This is a big thing, right? God says, here, I'm going to bring you into the promised land. I'm going to give you this land. And he even gave specific families, specific plots of land in the promised land. And this is my covenant promise to you. And he would, he told him, don't ever sell your land. Don't ever get rid of it. Keep it in the family because it is representative of my faithfully bringing you out of slavery and out of Egypt and into the promised land. So, so you wanted to have a son who could inherit your land, right? Someone who could have your name and kind of, you know, your name would last. It would, there would be a legacy that would last into the next generation by virtue of having a son, and so, so this uh, practice of the lever marriage and, and Judah telling Onan to, to kind of perform his duty as his brother's wife is to say, Ur didn't have a son. He's got no one to inherit his land. He's got no one to bear his name in the next generation. You go have a son with Tamar, but it will be Ur's son. 
Like, biologically, it will be your son, but he will be Ur's son. For all intents and purposes, he'll get Ur's inheritance. He'll have Ur's name. He won't consider you his father. He'll consider Ur his, his father, legally speaking. But Onan, verse 9, Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. Onan does not like this arrangement of, of a leveret marriage. He doesn't, right, he's, he's happy to sleep with Tamar. He just doesn't want to commit to her. He doesn't want to have any responsibility to her. He kind of says, if, if I'm going to father a child, I want it to be my child with my name, and I want him to carry my legacy and my name on into the next generation. This whole you know, leveret marriage thing is a, is a scam. It's, it's all downside and no upside, right? I have another mouth to feed. I have, you know, responsibility. I've got to get up in the middle of the night and change diapers, and this kid's not going to have my name. He's going to have my brother Ur's name. I don't even like my brother Ur that much. He was the firstborn. I kind of resent him for being the firstborn, and now, now is my time to shine. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to get stuck, you know, holding the bag and footing the bill for a son that's not even mine. So, er, so Onan sleeps with Tamar, but uh, sins against her by depriving her of, the, of a son that she, that she needs, right? I mean, again, so, so Tamar is like banking on having a son. She's like, man, because women, so if men got into old age without having a son, that was bad enough. But women, it was even worse because they had less means, less opportunity to provide for themselves, they needed children and they needed sons as they got older more even than men. And Onan basically says, "I will, uh, like, I will take the the momentary pleasure, the selfish gratification of what's being asked of me, but I will skip the long term responsibility and the self denial and the committing and the providing for this woman and this uh, child." Which, you know, sounds an awful lot like how a lot of men in our culture today might understand women and sex, right? I'll, I'll, I will sleep with, with a woman, but I won't commit to her, and I won't uh, commit to, you know, providing for her or providing for any children that may or may not come from this, from this union. God kills him. God kills Ur for his sin, and God kills Onan for his sin. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death also. Then Judah, verse 11, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared, Judah feared, that Shelah would die like his brothers. And so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Judah is like looking, Judah's like, All right, I don't know what's up with Tamar, but everyone that gets near her keeps dying. So I don't know if she's, you know, poisoning these, uh, putting arsenic in their soup or something, or I don't don't know what's happening, but everyone, every one of my sons that gets near her dies, and so I'm going to protect my last son from her and kind of shield her, shield him from her. Of course, uh, in so doing, he is depriving Tamar of the family and of the the protection from a husband and the the long-term sustainability from having children that he promised her when he kind of invited her to marry his first son, Ur. 
Right? He basically says, go home, live with your dad, uh, you know, which was, I mean, that, like, the, the goal of every, you know, female in Hebrew society was to, was to get married and have children, right? The, the, you know, the fathers were trying to help their daughters get married so that they wouldn't, you know, before they reached old age, that their, their, uh, daughters could have someone to provide for them. And so this is kind of setting her and setting her father back quite a bit. But Judah doesn't care, right? He's like, I don't, I don't want to lose my son. And I, right, little does Judah know that, that ultimately, Tamar, it's not Tamar's sin that's, that's kind of killing his two sons. It's their own sin against her. But nevertheless, he's selfish. And he says, I'd, I'd rather keep my son safe, my legacy safe, my name safe, than I would have someone provide for this girl that I have some uh, meaningful obligation to. That's Tamar. She's you know, effectively a, a, a widow with no means of protection, and she's getting older, and, and Judah's getting older, Shayla's getting older, time is ticking by. Verse 12, in the course of time, Judah, uh, uh, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, and he and his friend Hira, the, the Adulamite. So again, years have gone by. Judah uh, is in mourning. He's lost his wife. He's looking to drown his sorrows. Verse 13, Tamar is told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she takes off her widow's garments and she covers herself with a veil. She wraps herself up and she sits at the entrance to Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So Tamar is like, this guy is, is not, he's doing me wrong, right? He, he uh, promised me a husband and by implication children and, and kind of sustainability and, and, you know, an opportunity to kind of, uh, you know, be, uh, have security as I grow older and he is not following through on that. His, both of his two sons were losers and deadbeats and, and God killed them because of it and now he is withholding uh, his third son and, and I'm the one that's kind of left without any resources and without any security that I need as I grow older. So she takes matter into her own hands, takes the matters into her own hands. Uh, she, uh, verse 15, uh, you know, when Judah saw her, Judah thinks that she is a prostitute for she'd covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, let me come into you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So Judah is not exactly I mean, his wife just died. Judah's not exactly an upstanding uh, moral guy, right? He's just like his sons. You can kind of see where they got their selfishness from, from their father, uh, Judah. As soon as his wife dies, he's out looking for, for sex. And she responds, what will you give me that you may come into me, right? So Tamar has learned her lesson about Judah, right? She's, she, she's like, Judah is a scoundrel. Judah uh, is not going to, like, like Judah promised me uh, a husband and a family, and he gave me two loser sons, and he withheld the only son that might potentially be a decent mate for me. He won't let me marry her. He's letting me grow older uh, without provision and without security, so he can't be trusted. And so, so she says, what will you give me? And he says, I'll give you a young goat from my flock, in verse 17. She's, and she's like, yeah, right, I don't buy it. Right? If you, you have to give me a pledge until, like, I, I, like, I will, we'll do this, this transaction if you want, but it's not, I can't just do it on your word that you'll give me a young goat, because she's thinking, you gave me your word that you would give me a son and a family, and you didn't do that, so you have to give me a pledge. And he says, well, what pledge shall I give to you? 
And she says, I want you to give me your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your, your hand. So your signet um, is, is, it's like a little, it's like a wax seal kind of thing, right? You have like a seal on your ring or something like that. If you've ever gotten a letter that was sealed with wax that they kind of dropped them, that was what the signet was. And it was on a cord that they would kind of wear uh, on their, on their body or something like that. But it was, it was like a unique, uh, it was something unique, right? It was like a family crest or your initials, something that was like telling that it was just yours, that you could kind of use to seal something and show that you had, had been there, um, you know, so like, think like a driver's license or something like that, right? Something that's unique, something that can be traced to a particular person. And so Tamar asks for this, uh, you know, yeah, like cufflinks or something. Tamar asks for this unique thing that she can have from, she's basically saying, right, if you, I'll, I'll sleep with you, but only if you pay me up front. If you can't pay me up front, then you have to give me collateral. And if it's going to be collateral, it has to be something significant, something important, something personal that you're going to want back or something that can be linked to you personally. So Judah gives his signet and cord and staff to Tamar, goes into her, and she conceives by him. In verse 19, then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. So Judah and Tamar, this is her father-in-law, Judah, uh, you know, Tamar sleeps with her father-in-law, Judah. Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Uh, and, and, and these are Jesus' ancestors, right? These are like, this is the family that Jesus actively chose to be born into. Verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat uh, by his friend the Adulamite back to take the pledge back from the woman's hand, he did not Finder. So Judah gets to where he's going. He's like, all right, here's the goat that I promised this prostitute. Now let me like send a surrogate to go and get uh, my, my stuff back. And, and can I take this, this goat to her? She's not there. 21, he asks the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has ever been here. And Judah replies, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at, right? You see, I sent this goat and you did not find, he's like, I, I did my, like I told her I'd give her a goat. I tried, right? Plausible deniability. I, I did my best to give her what I said that I could have. Let's just drop it, right? I'm not about to go back and just kind of start shouting from the roadside, has anyone seen the prostitute that I, you know, commit, commissioned? She has my driver's license. She has my credit cards. She has my social security. Like, please, I, can anyone connect me with, like, he's like, that's embarrassing. Things have already gotten bad enough. Let's just leave it. I don't want people to laugh at us and to kind of, this is, this is not, not getting any better. I'll just go to the DMV, get another one. Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. So this is, what it, right, this is the twist, right? This is where it gets tricky, right? Judah, you know, it, initially, he, you know, he doesn't think any, this, this encounter that he had with uh, who he thinks was a prostitute months ago doesn't think anything of it, some random night with some random stranger, and now people are coming to him and they're saying, hey, Judah, your daughter, J- Tamar, has been sleeping around. So you're, she is now pregnant, and, and weren't you supposed to give her in marriage to your 
third son, Shelah, and what are you going to do? Like now she has some other man's child. Are you going to, is she still going to marry Shelah? Like, you know, this, like the ball's in your court, Judah. Like she has been unfaithful. She has committed sexual immorality. What are we going to do with her? Now at this point, Judah could speak up for her, right? He could say, look, uh, Tamar was in a tough spot, and I put her there. I'm the one who promised my son to her, and that guy was a loser, and then I promised another son to her, and that guy was a loser, and then I promised my third son to her, and then I reneged on my promise. And now I kind of left her kind of hanging in the lurch, you know, with, with no uh, you know, long-term security. I put her in a tough spot, and so it's as much my fault as it is hers. Give her uh, you know, a little bit of, of grace here. Right? Or he could have said, listen, I get that my daughter-in-law is pregnant by immorality, but I'm no, you know, I'm no saint myself, right? It's like, I'll, I'll just go on the record and say that I, you know, as soon as my wife died, I went out and found who I thought to be uh, a prostitute, and I slept with, I'm, I'm no stranger to sexual immorality. I need forgiveness as much as the next person, so why don't we just take a beat before we talk about punishing Tamar, because if we apply that same logic to me, then I will have to be punished as well. Those are all things that Judah could have said. Instead, he says, bring her out so that she may be burned. Let's just kill her. Let's just burn Tamar alive because she has been unfaithful. Right? He's probably thinking, thank goodness that, that I now have an excuse to kind of get Tamar out of my family. I didn't want to give Shayla to her in the first place because I was afraid that Shayla would die if he got near her. So I was kind of hoping for a moral failure of some kind so that I could kind of exercise the morality clause in the contract and kind of get her out of the, the picture. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, that's not good, uh, by the man whom, to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Ugh. Busted. This is like the, this is like the, you know, Maury Povich, like the big reveal, <laughs> right? The paternity test. You are the, oh no, I didn't, Right? So now Judah is like just mortified because he's been like righteous indignation. Up, right? I can't believe that she would do something like this. What kind of, you know, what kind of woman would, would go be unfaithful? And what kind of loser of a guy would, would get her pregnant? Ugh, it's, it's me. I'm, I'm busted. Tamar has kind of exposed uh, not, not only how Judah was the one who uh, slept with, with her, which is bad because it's, her, it's his daughter-in-law, but he, she's also kind of brought back into the public consciousness the fact that Judah was, was sinning against her by withholding Shelah from her. Judah was, was putting his needs and his son's needs above Tamar, this woman that he had kind of promised to take care of through his, his children. And Judah confesses. She's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shayla, and he did not know her again. Right, he confess, right, albeit after he's exposed, he, he does nonetheless confess publicly. 
right? Tamar kind of exposes him, brings his sin uh, to light, and he confesses and says, this is not just on her, this is on me as well. Five minutes ago, I was calling for her to be killed, and now I'm confessing that I am the guilty one. I sinned against Tamar. Anything that you would want to do to me, to, to her, you need to do to me as well. This is really, I mean, if you read the, the rest of the book of Genesis, this is a turning point in the life of Judah. Like I said, I mean, up until this point in, verse, in chapter 38, and then back in chapter 37, Judah is all in it for himself, right? Throw Joseph into a well. Take him out of the well and sell him to slave traders. Like, what do we want with him? I'm jealous of him. I don't want him uh, around. I don't like Joseph. Get rid of him. And then all of this with, with Tamar. And now, you know, from, from this point uh, forward in the book of, of Genesis, uh, Judah is a changed man, right? Uh, later, or later, Jacob's going to send Judah and his ten brothers uh, to Egypt to get food because there's a big famine in the land. And little does he know that Joseph is actually the one who is there that he's, he's unknowingly sending his brothers to. But Joseph decides to test them. Because he's like, man, like these 11 guys really did me wrong, so I'm going to see if they actually are repentant. And so he kind of uh, devises this scheme where he you know, uh, says, I'm going to hold Benjamin, one of your 11 brothers, as my slave permanently. And in Genesis 44, Judah, the same guy who was like kind of, con- like kind of leading the charge in betraying and selling Joseph into slavery, now in, verse, in chapter 44, Judah is the one who, who goes up to Joseph doesn't, even, doesn't recognize him, but he goes over to Joseph and entreats him and says, uh, take me as a slave instead of my brother Benjamin. I promised my father I'd bring him back safely. And if you have to, if, right, I get that he's sinned against you and I get that you have every right to keep him as your slave. I'm asking you as a favor to me to take me instead. Like Judah has finally kind of realized how to put other people's needs before his own and to, to you know, sacrifice for other people, which has been completely foreign to him up until this point in, in the narrative. He cares about other people. And then we see the results in verse 27 and following. When the time for Tamar's labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife uh, took and tied a scarlet thread to his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is yet another incident in a long line of them in Genesis that focuses on the children and who's the firstborn and who is the, the line that the blessing is going to flow through. There's, there's uh, you know, Ishmael and Isaac, and then there's Jacob and Esau, and then there's Joseph and Judah and their ten brothers, and now there's Perez and Zerah. And even before they're born, they're already like jockeying for position. They're already trying to get the top roster spot of being the first born. Zerah almost gets it, but then Perez bursts forth, and his mother names him Bursts Forth. That's the story of Judah and Tamar. Again, it's, it's fairly scandalous. It's fairly... It's not, it's not a story that you would want to like immortalize in your genealogy, in your, your family history, unless you have to, but Jesus did. It kind of raises the question, what can we, why is the story here? What can we learn from it? 
right? What's, what can we learn from their example? What can we uh, learn from their mistakes? I just want to point out just a couple of quick points of application. First, uh, marriage, right? You can kind of look at, uh, at how Judah and Ur and Onan all kind of understand marriage. And the recurring theme is that for them, it's a, it's a selfish uh, mechanism, right? Marriage is something that I get into for myself. I don't necessarily love Tamar. I don't care about Tamar. I don't uh, desire to prioritize Tamar. I don't want to, to put Tamar's needs above my own. I am in this marriage for myself so that I can get something out. And God kills them. One after the other. God is killing these guys for, for not understanding marriage correctly and not uh, entering into it selflessly. God's purpose for marriage is not that your spouse uh, will, will meet your needs, cater to your needs, give you everything that you want. God's purpose for marriage for you is so that you can bless and serve and provide for your spouse, so that you can put their needs before your own. Right? If the whole point of marriage is for your spouse to make your life better, for, for that person to give you what you want, for them to do your dishes, for them to put their money into your bank account, that's not how God designed marriage to, to work. Right? God designed marriage to work with, with others-centeredness and love of neighbor kind of at the, the center of it, where you seek to bless them, you seek to serve them, you seek to make their life better instead of trying to extract what you want out of them at their expense. Genesis 38 tells us a lot about marriage. It also tells us a lot about repentance. Ur sins against God. He refuses to repent. God kills him. Onan sins against God. He refuses to repent. God kills him. For a long time, Judah is sinning against Tamar, withholding from her, sleeping with someone that he thinks is a prostitute. His life implodes because of it. God is calling Judah to repent of his selfishness. He's calling Judah to to give Shelah to Tamar so that she can get married and have some security. God was calling Judah to repent of his sin and come clean, make things right. And God is calling us, like he's calling Judah, to repent of our sin to confess where we've sinned against God, to confess to other people where we have sinned against them, to repent and to to make things right. Genesis 38 tells us a lot about marriage. It tells us a lot about repentance. It tells us a lot about forgiveness, right? When When it comes to Judah's own sin, there's deafening silence, right? Don't tell anyone. Uh, they're going to laugh at me. It'll be embarrassing. Let's just kind of uh, sweep this under the rug. Let's pretend like it never happened. When it comes to someone else's sin, Judah is sounding the alarm, like shout it from the, from the rooftops. I want, how dare she do this? We need to burn her alive. I can't believe that she would do something so immoral. Judah is way more concerned about someone else's sin than he is concerned about his own sin. He's way quicker to call for someone else to be punished for their sin than he is to accept responsibility for his own sin. It's hypocrisy, it's self-righteousness, and it is, it's pride. Side note, I can't, I can't help but... Um, but see some of the parallels, right? If you, if you talk to a feminist about the abortion issue today, 
Right? They, they might not have ever read Genesis 38, but, but a feminist talking about the abortion issue who supports the right for women to have an abortion are going to, to say something very similar to what you see in Genesis 38 about abortion, right? That, that it, you know, uh, people who support the right for abortion aren't, at least I've never met one, that enjoys the thought of unborn children being killed. But what they hate, what they, what they can't stand is this exact phenomenon going on in our culture today where, where men can be like Judah and go sleep with whoever they want with no consequences. If they cause an unplanned pregnancy, all they have to do is just change their phone number, move to a different zip code, right? move on with life, not my problem, and, and no one is the wiser. While women get treated like Tamar, where if they, you know, Get, get inadvertently pregnant today, their life is unended. And they're stuck with a baby that they hadn't planned for, and everyone can see it, and everyone can kind of know that they made a mistake, a very embarrassing mistake, a mistake that's easy to, to judge and call them out. And oftentimes, the very people judging the women, right, calling them out, embarrassing them, refusing to forgive them, permanently stigmatizing them, the very people doing that are males, who may very well have been guilty of the same exact sin, the same exact sexual immorality, but they've just hidden it, and no one knows about it, and they kind of keep it safely, neatly tucked away where no one can see. And feminists see that, and they say, that's not fair. That is not appropriate. It's not fair that men get to hide their mistakes uh, or disclose them on their terms, while women don't have a choice. They're outed and embarrassed without any say on the matter. In fact, it's so unfair, and the unfairness is so bad that it is worse than mass genocide of unborn children. Right? It would, it would be worse to let that unfairness exist in society than it would be to kill unborn children. Now, the, the Bible is very clear that abortion is wrong, that abortion should not be legal, that, that abortion is sin, and that there's no excuse for abortion. So I'm not saying that by any means, but what I am saying is I can't help but wonder if there would be far fewer abortions or if there would be far less cultural outcry and demand for the right to have an abortion if there were less men like Judah in our culture engaging in sexual immorality, covering it up, and then judging and condemning and pointing their finger at women for the exact same sexual immorality that they themselves are guilty of. My guess is that if, if there were less men like that, and if there were more men who were willing to confess their sin and repent of it, and were quicker to offer grace and forgiveness when other people sin, there might not be as many abortions, and there might not be as much of a demand for women to have the right to have an abortion. Just speculation. So Genesis 38 tells us a lot about marriage. It tells us a lot about repentance. It tells us a lot about forgiveness. And finally, and most importantly... Genesis 38 tells us that God forgives and restores sinners through the gospel. See that? This, this story is crazy. This story is out of a daytime talk show, right? Just craziness, dysfunction, drama, right? Shame, guilt, right? This story would make someone on Jerry Springer look like a, a nun, right? This story is, is crazy, 
Judah sinning against his daughter-in-law, Tamar seducing her father-in-law, scandal, drama. And yet this, the, these people are Jesus' ancestors. You would expect to read a story like this in the Bible talking about other people. The pagans, the idolaters, right? The enemies of the people of God. You wouldn't expect to read this story about the people of God. You certainly wouldn't expect to read it about Jesus' great, 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 great grandmother. That's exactly what it is. God takes this warped, twisted, messed up family drama and he redeems it. He takes Tamar, who is an adulterer, who seduces her own father-in-law into sexual sin. And he says, I want you to be in my family. I want you to be my grandmother. I want you to be immortalized in my family tree. God takes this weird, twisted situation and he redeems it. Because, because God redeems sinners. And God can redeem you. Right? I don't, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. God can redeem you. God can take your sin and your dysfunction and your drama and your scandal. God can take everything that you're embarrassed about that you hope will never come to light. God can take all of that and God can redeem it. Because one day, centuries later, dozens of generations later, after Tamar, after Judah, after Perez, one day a baby would be born. His name was Jesus. And Jesus would go on to live a sinless life as the Lamb of God. Jesus would, would be uh, completely free from any sort of immorality, free from sin. Jesus would live the perfect life that God called Tamar and Judah and me and you to live. And then Jesus died a sinner's death on the cross. Jesus took the punishment and the penalty that was meant for you. He took your guilt. He took your shame. He took your stigma. He took all of your baggage and your embarrassment and your drama and your dysfunction. He took all of that on himself so that you can be saved from it. And Jesus promises that if you turn from your sin and look to him and trust in him, he will save you from it. He'll forgive you, he'll redeem you, he will heal you, he will restore you, and, and like Tamar, he will welcome you into his family. He will welcome you into his presence forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we confess that... Uh, we are, we are like Judah. We're selfish. We care more about ourselves than we care about others. We're quick to hide our own sin and keep it quiet, and yet quick to point our finger at the sins of others and sound the alarm and demand that they pay for it. Please forgive us. We confess that we're like Tamar. We carry around uh, tons of, of baggage and drama and sin and guilt and shame and fear. And Lord, we need you to save us. Please forgive us. Please redeem us. Please, please adopt us into your family. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.